Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A gracious and most merciful Father, we give thanks and praise to you that this is the day that you have made, that we shall rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, let us be thankful in our hearts forever for what you have given to us, even this very day, that you have blessed and bestowed upon us. Lord, we pray that we would have thankful hearts in all that we do and what you have given to us in our abundance. Lord, that we would give thanks and praise to you, the one who sustains us. Lord, we also pray that you would help us in this very need. Help us with which what we lack in of our own accord. Lord, as we seek to be able to live by bread alone, help us to be able to live by your word that we shall live from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Sustain us through your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word, Lord, from Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. This is God's holy and errant life-giving word. Please take heed how you hear. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will... Let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. He went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Chapter 11 is a great chapter to be able to move us from what has gone before, the three cycles of nine signs and wonders to this final great plague, or as chapter 11 calls us, this final blow. Before we get to be able to understand what this final blow actually is, we really need to be able to understand the extent of what has happened up to this point. How do we get to this place in which 
God sends forth this great and disastrous plague upon the land of Egypt. When looking at judgments like this, we need to understand the severity of the crime. To hear merely the verdict of a life sentence is not nearly enough. And a life sentence on a small crime seems very severe. But often when you hear of the life sentence and you hear of what the crime was accomplished, you see that the punishment fits the crime. And where we are at this point is Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for a long amount of time. 400 years roughly, depending on where you read it. Genesis 15, 13 or Acts 7 both speak of 400 years of them being enslaved, afflicted. And again, we need to understand that this is not merely just some mild form of slavery in which they're forced to do a job they do not want to do for very minimum wages. It is that they, for these long periods of time, were oppressed. Now this word can be thrown around today in in very various manners. But when we speak of this oppression, it truly is a great oppression of a whole people. That they were afflicted with great burdens, we read throughout the book of Exodus. That when they did not accomplish these heavy bearing tasks upon them, they were beaten. Generation after generation born into this bondage of slavery, 400 years. Put that merely in perspective, it's hard to be able to grasp and fathom. But this would have been going back from about this date all the way back to those who came on the Mayflower, sailing across the ocean on their way to America. For that whole period of time, the people of God were treated terribly. Again, it's hard for us really to be able to fathom what had gone on up to this point. I mean, Modern examples are hard to explain. Even we don't have a modern example like this, which is a good thing. But maybe to be able to find two somewhat modern examples of that of the mid-Atlantic slave trade, of people coming over into their own country, stealing people, uh, being sold and carried across in these treacherous conditions across the ocean, being forced into a whole new country to be able to work, treated not like people, but like animals. Not merely just that, but also then the Holocaust of people being treated as lesser, that they're not seen as those made in the image of God as a problem to be eradicated. And this is the the, the extent of what is happening in this period of time for these men and women treated like animals, owned, oppressed by others, forcing them to labor in these miserable conditions with no end in sight, while also being able to combine the the deep depravities of the Holocaust, of the slaughter of the sons of Israel, by seeking first the midwives to be able to kill them as they are born, and then second to be able to throw these small children into the Nile, as their small lungs were filled with water as they struggled to be able to breathe. And this is what's happened over these past four centuries as these people were beaten brutally, savagely slaughtered, mercilessly mistreated. 
And this is not a, a minor crime. This is not merely, again, that they are just working minimum wage and they're oppressed in some categories that we would use today. This is one of great severity and one which God will judge with this final blow. And so many people ask, how could God do this? How could he judge the Egyptians so harshly? So as we continue to go through this, we'll try and seek to be able to answer those questions, but I think chapter 11 is a great one to be able to understand as God announces to Pharaoh what is finally going to happen. The first thing that we see is restitution. The first thing we see is restitution. Long before this conversation between Pharaoh and Moses happened, so chapter 11 happens during the period of time in chapter 10. Pharaoh finally says at the end of chapter 10, go away and do not want to see your face again. Before he leaves, Moses warns him what we see in chapter 11. But long before this happened, this conversation happened, the Lord had a conversation with Moses, uh, Abraham and told him in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, that know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This promise here that God spoke to Abraham told them that they would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be slaves in a land that is not theirs. But also when they leave, they will come out with great possession. It's somewhat of a similar story you see in, in Genesis that what happens when, when Abram and Sarai go to uh, Egypt. Uh, plagues come upon the land, the household of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh in the end says, get out of my country and here's all these blessings that you get, these great possessions. But he'd also, the Lord had also told Moses in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, that I will give these, this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask for her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and for gold, jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now normally in a time as we think of this as been some great battle between God's people and, and Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods and the Israelites' God, that often what would happen is the, the, the winners, the victors, would come in and plunder the other nation. They would pillage and plunder the defeated nation. However, what we see in chapter 11, the Lord plunders the Egyptians, but... Here they are, they're giving all these things away. This shows kind of the Lord is the one who has defeated the gods of Egypt. He has defeated the people of Egypt. And the Israelites go and knock on the door of their Egyptian neighbors and don't go in and, and force their way in and, and rob them and pillage them. But here the Egyptians freely give over their things. Here's some silver, here's some gold, here's some clothes. The signs and wonders had made the magicians say that this is the finger of God. The signs and wonders have, have told the advisors who sit around Pharaoh that just let the people go. This has ruined Egypt. 
But also the people of Egypt have had enough as well. They're willing to lose all their gold and their silver to be able to see the people out of their land. And through this, the signs and wonders have showed forth, and and the people of Egypt see this. God shows his power through his signs and wonders, but also even through them handing these over to the people of Israel. And one effect that happens in, in slavery is that here you're owned by someone else, you own nothing, and once you are a freed man, you have nothing to your name. When you're treated like a title and not like a person, you're treated like an object and not a person made in the image of God, you have nothing that belongs to you. You actually belong to someone else. But here the Lord not merely just frees them, but he provides for them. And restitution does not provide justice. But what it does is it seeks to be able to pay back something that was taken. And the Lord in his plan, as he told Abraham many, t- many years before this, was not only he was going to save his people from the hand of slavery, but he was also going to bring them out of the land with great wealth. And so too with us. Is this not how God relates to us? Not merely does he pay the price of sin and atonement for us, merely just clearing the debt, but he he grants to us this glorious inheritance, something that we could not attain by ourselves. But he gives it to us through Christ, his wealth and his inheritance found in him. We see restitution. We also see retribution. The constant refrain throughout all of these signs and wonders is that Pharaoh hardened his heart. The signs and wonders had the people of Egypt desiring for God's people to be able to go out of their land, to be able to leave them. However, in all of this, Pharaoh has been the one who has hardened his heart. The magicians, the advisors, the people are all willing to be able to see the people go, but Pharaoh say no. He still will not listen to God. The original request was for them to be able to go three days' journey into the wilderness so they might be able to serve the Lord. However, here we're told that they're going to go completely. In verse 2, we see that quite clearly. Um, uh, verse 1, when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Again, you show the, the power and the might of God that it's not merely just answering a three-day journey, you know, a service for a request for a seven-day trip, but here to be able to let them go all the way, which seems against what God, what we have seen up to this point. You see that in the contrast in verse 10. They did all these signs and wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord, and, and here the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people go out of the land. 
And every single one of these signs and wonders, Pharaoh puts his foot down and says the people can't go. Yet there's going to be a sign that comes where Pharaoh will let all the people go completely out of land. The Lord is sovereign over all things. So much that he's able to know how Pharaoh will respond after each plague. His heart is still hardened, but in his sin sends the people out. Even Pharaoh doesn't want to let the people go, and yet his sin is what drives the people out to be able to answer God's call to be able to do that. It's not that Pharaoh merely just has a change of heart and merely just says, well, they can go now. He drives them out in his sin. Even his hardened heart sends them out. And then he will try and chase them down and try and destroy them once more. And God had told us all of this right in chapter 6, before any of this was going to happen. And specifically, we're told that these signs and wonders, these great acts of judgment upon the land of Egypt. And this final act is this, this ultimate sign and wonder that God pours out his wrath upon Pharaoh for his, the great sins which he has afflicted upon the God's people. And we need to understand this judgment comes from God. God is not acting like a child does in, in hitting Pharaoh back. True justice seeks to be able to come in the form of retribution, not retaliation. While retaliation is motivated by personal reasonings, including revenge, retribution stems from the desire to be able to seek justice. And God judges man for their sin. Paul in Romans 2 says that God shows us that God's judgment is righteous. He says, but because of your heart and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. Here Paul specifically says this is judgment from God, but this is God's righteous judgment. We might not be able to comprehend the judgment of God, but again, we must see that this final sign is actually one that fits the crime. Notice in verse 5 that the sign of wonder will bring death to the firstborn in all of Egypt. Again, we need to remember what Pharaoh did. To the people of Israel. That how many people were put to death through their beatings, through their physical labor, putting to death their bodies through carrying too much, these heavy burdens which are placed upon them. But more specifically, the Pharaoh sought to be able to wipe out a whole generation of their sons. It forced generations to build his houses in his country with heavy burdens. That you see that what this did to the Israelites was in, at the end of chapter 2 was causing them to be able to cry out to God for help. You see the same response here. That now the Egyptians will cry out in the middle of the blackness of night in verse 6. 
Now again, we can start to be able to raise our hands and think, this is not fair. Why should children suffer? Why should women suffer? Why should children suffer because their parents or citizens suffer because of their stubbornness of kings? Without going into some great philosophical reasoning, I think you can just see this true is, is true in reality and also in the Bible. The truth is that parents' actions affect their children. You see that just quite clearly, for good or ill. The biblical principle is worked through Adam. As Paul expresses in Romans chapter 5, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The principle here is Adam's sin, therefore all of Adam's children are sinners. That because of Adam's sin, sin lives in us and we live and sin affects our lives. But as we will see, this is a great benefit to us. But also when we think about God's mercy and justice, we're told that the Lord keeps his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this principle is, is not merely that it's, it's uh, equal in that a father's sin will then pass down from generation to generation, thousands of generations, that it's, a father's sin will be affected and, and the children's children will be affected by the father's sin for the third and fourth generation. But here, God will show his steadfast love to thousands. It's not only true of parents and children, but also of kings and their subjects. That kings, queens, rulers all affect how we live our daily lives. Their decisions affect us. In major ways, it has an effect. If, if a nation declares war on another nation, that affects their subjects. Even just minor ways. Raising taxes, 0.01%, affects your life. Now, the impact of that effect of your life might not be grand, but it's still true. And here, Pharaoh's choices have placed Egypt into economical ruin. And their land is ruined, devastated. Now, again, this is true for good and for bad. When you have a bad king, this is a bad thing. When you have a good king, it's a good thing. If the economy is growing and thriving, then prosperity comes, not just to the king, but also to their subjects as well. In Adam's case, it is bad. That sin came through one man and death reigned to all men. But when we think about it through Christ, what a good thing this is. This is what we call federal headship, and the principle is very important. When we think about sin inherited from Adam, that Adam's sin became our sinful nature, but then when we think about Christ, the good king, that Christ's righteousness is now passed on to us 
Through Adam, we get our sinful nature, and then you might say through Christ, you get your righteous nature. The basis of our salvation, that Christ's righteousness becomes ours. You cry out to the citizens of Egypt, do not deserve to be able to pay for Pharaoh's stubbornness. Then the true thing is that we all then should deserve what we get paid. That there are also ones who beat, enslaved, mocked, ridiculed the Israelites. That if you cry out and say it's not fair for the Egyptians to get what Pharaoh did, then the argument on the other side is it's not fair for you to get what Christ gave. Judgment is coming. God has announced this final plague to Pharaoh, this final blow in chapter 11. But he's done so from the very beginning. In chapter 4, when Moses was told by the Lord, Then you shall go to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Let Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God had warned Pharaoh right from the very beginning what was coming. Pharaoh had been warned, he'd been told. He might have one point said he was ignorant to what the Lord requested. But that cannot be an answer anymore. He has seen the power of God pronounced and shown across the whole land nine times. Previously, the Lord would warn Pharaoh that this plague would come and tomorrow it was there. But we see no warning of tomorrow. Actually, what we see is that this final plague will come in the mid, middle of the night. The final plague will come roughly at midnight. And we, again, we need to understand that this takes on more than just timing of it. There's no other choice in it for Pharaoh. But here in the ninth plague, the Lord defeated the, the sun god Ra, or his other people call Horus or different names, but Ra is common. And in the penultimate plague, this darkness falls upon it. And now in the still of the night, the, the final plague will come, the death of the firstborn. John Currid explains that nighttime was an especially fearful time for the Egyptians. In the hymn uh, to the Anton, the author describes the dread of night because the sun god has departed to the underworld and is no longer protecting the Egyptians. But for the Hebrews, on the other hand, there was, is no fear, for he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, as Psalm 121 says. Yahweh is awake, working, sustaining, and protecting his people. And that leads us to our third and final thing that we see in this chapter, is that of redemption. And here we see quite clearly that the Lord will show distinction between Pharaoh's people and God's people. This will be the sign that Pharaoh will let God's people go to be able to go and worship and serve him. Now he does this very important distinction through the act of Passover, which we'll spend a lot of time going over in the next chapter or two. And some of the Egyptians will be saved that they will understand the fear of the Lord, as they have done throughout the plagues. Those who 
heard the Lord's wisdom and warning, were spared. That they will be the ones who place store blood on their doorposts. The Lord makes a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. In Egypt, there will be a cry that goes up in the middle of the night, a cry that has never been heard before, but in the land of Goshen, where God had already set apart with his people, the dogs will even be silent. We must not think that God is merely doing this because the Israelites are better people. If you read any further in, in the Bible, you'll, you'll find out that the Israelites are just like the Egyptians. They're just like all these other people. There is stubbornness, Pharaoh. They don't heed God's word. They will grumble and complain. They will worship false gods. And if we think that God is merely just saying, these are special people, that's why I'm making a distinction between them. Because they love me. They do certain things for me. Read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the rest of the Bible, and you'll see that, that Israel, Israel is more similar to those in Egypt. That Israel is filled with sinners. So what makes the difference? What makes it that God makes that distinction? I think there's many things that we can say that make that distinction. God says later in Deuteronomy that he chose them not because they were great in number, not because they were mighty, but he loved them. But two things, just quickly, that would help us answer this question. Why does God make this distinction between Pharaoh's people and Israel? It's first because of God's promises. God had told Abraham that this would happen. He had told the people of God that he was going to save them and redeem them. That here, the reason why he saves them is because God keeps his word. No matter what the people of God were doing, why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He kept his word. You see that clearly in Exodus chapter 6 when Moses is to tell the people of Israel that I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians." He does it to be able to show forth his promises, his word, that they might be able to understand. The second aspect that we see of this redemption is why does God make a distinction between them is because of God's character. When we consider the judgment of God, what we need to understand is we all deserve judgment. The same question is the one Paul addresses in Romans chapter 9, which we've mentioned several times as we've gone through this study in Exodus. But here, Paul explains that the potter makes two types of vessels. He makes one for honor, and the other vessel he makes for dishonor. And he says in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 22 and 23, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. 
So God makes these two forms of vessels as, as the potter makes the clay. And one is showing forth his power and his wrath with much patience. Again, we've seen this time and time again with Pharaoh. But all for the purposes for those of the vessels of mercy, making his riches of glory to these other vessels known. That we might be able to look at those vessels of wrath and say, that is what we deserve. That is what everyone deserves. And yet God has set us apart and made us mercy that we might receive his mercy. The difference is not that some people are just better than others. But God has shown some mercy to those whom he's chosen for his glory. He shows his wrath for his glory. He shows his mercy for his glory. God shows his mercy, as Moses writes in Exodus 11, verse 7, that they may know that the Lord makes a distinction. God is about to redeem his people by saving them through the blood of the Passover lamb. And in this awe-inspiring conclusion of, of what has happened up to this point and what is going to happen in this warning and announcement on the, the cliff of this divine judgment, which through divine judgment will bring divine redemption. This profound events of this unfolding of what we read in Exodus is exactly this universal need for salvation that we find. Just as the citizens of Egypt faced the consequences beyond their control due to Pharaoh's choices, we too find ourselves in the state of sin, born into a broken world, but with hope found through Jesus Christ. So to the Israelites, far from deserving anything of this mercy which is shown to them, will experience this mercy and grace, redemption through the blood of the Passover lamb. Again, this powerful image that we'll look over as we continue to study through Exodus, this ultimate image of the shadow of Christ to come. What saves the people of Israel, God's people? It's not their actions. It's the blood of another. The blood put forth is the propitiation of sins that provides this way for those who put their faith in him to escape this, this judgment which we rightly deserve. Stark reminder that our birthplace or circumstances are, is not what saves us. It's Christ alone who offers salvation to all who heed his call. As we see this distinction God makes with Egypt, let it echo in our hearts. We find our salvation not in thinking that we're better than others. We find our redemption in looking to the one who is better than others, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that in this chapter in which we see your warning and pronouncement of this judgment to come, we also see the hope of what will bring forth through this judgment, that through this judgment life will come. Slavery will be set, those who are enslaved will be set free from this bondage through the blood of another. 
Help us to be able to seek, to understand, and not be boasting in ourselves, thinking that we are greater than others, but see that we are all instruments in a potter's hand, that through the wrath poured out in the, the vessels of wrath we see your glory, that we might be able to understand as vessels of mercy what you have given to us through your grace and your mercy through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.